welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honour Galilee of the Gentiles. By the way of the sea along the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on, and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The sky was dark. The passengers were dozing uncomfortably as the plane just flew on through the night. One of the passengers just opened the blind and stared out into that intense darkness that was outside. But gradually he became aware of a change taking place. It was as if someone had just taken a razor blade and just made a cut all along the eastern horizon. And an orange light started to pour through. And that perfect straight line widened and the light poured through in an increasing intensity of golden brilliance. Dawn was breaking. Dawn was breaking across the sky and it was overcoming the night. Isaiah wrote, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. That's how it begins one of the best-known prophecies of Isaiah. 
And as it continues, it unfolds a picture of a time when God's nation was going to be multiplied. When the yoke of slavery that had hindered them in the past would be broken, and when a new government would emerge. And it says about that government, it was going to be ever-increasing. And it was going to rest comfortably on the shoulders of the child who was to be born to us. And it says he was going to be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And it says, and there will be no end to the increase of his government. Wonderful promises. They're wonderful promises about the coming of a king and his kingdom. We're living in days when that kingdom is advancing. Jesus said that his gospel of the kingdom needed to be preached to all nations and then the end would come. Through the ages, various men and women have carried that baton in their generation. And actually, now our time has come. This is our generation. A time when we need to carry that battle, baton of seeing the kingdom advance and the gospel preached in all the nations. Ultimately, the light of Christ's kingdom will be seen by all the nations who sit in darkness. A time of breakthrough must come. What can we expect? In verse 4 of Isaiah 9, we get an unexpected clue. It tells us it will be as at the battle of Midian. Now this is where Gideon comes in, because that was his battle. As at the battle of Gideon. So if we want to find out how the light will overcome the darkness, and what happens when the light of God explodes into this world... A world that is accustomed to shadow and darkness, to confusion and blindness. We need to look back at that battle of Midian. That's where we will discover a lesson that's relevant today as we look for God's power to break into our world, into the spiritual darkness of our generation. If you care to turn to Judges 6, I'm just going to read from verse 1. And this is now looking at the Battle of Midian. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Wherever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and didn't spare a single living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. 
It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and I gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you haven't listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's a time when Israel was living in darkness. You can see that. It says in those opening few verses, they were in hiding, they were overwhelmed by their enemies, and they were lacking any sense of the blessing that God had rested upon them. But if you read on, you'll find by the end of chapter 7, that defeated nation has been transformed into a victorious people. These chapters, these two chapters, contain principles which we can't afford to overlook. The story begins, and it's one of the most devastating scenes of Israel in the Old Testament. They're living in constant fear of the Midianite armies who are coming and raiding, of the repeated attacks, and they've been forced eventually into hiding. They began to live in mountain caves. Every time they planted seed, their enemies would come and destroy the entire crop. This once conquering nation of Israel had fallen into a period of decline. And it seemed as though the enemies of Israel had become invincible. Nothing could be done about them. So, before long, they just had to adapt. They adapted to just living simply under great pressure. And they resorted to hiding. Now, the tragedy is, these sons of Israel were still God's people. They were people with a great destiny that had been promised them. And they had a magnificent past. They'd overcome an awful lot. The previous generations under Moses and Joshua had seen huge victories. They'd seen triumph after triumph. They'd experienced and seen outbreaks of supernatural power. They'd seen the Red Sea separate. They'd seen the walls of Jericho fall. That was only a few generations before. 
They also had a glorious future that was being prophesied. And in fact, it was only a generation or two after that we would see the anointing of Samuel that led to the mighty kingdoms of David and Solomon. But this period in the book of Judges, it was like a spiritual drought. It was a tragic time. Miraculous past, brilliant future. And here, it was tragic. And what made it even more tragic is it is a time when God was showing himself to be willing to pour out his spirit on people, on individuals. The tragedy is, we live in such a time. We're a people with a calling. We're a people with a future. We have a wonderful history and heritage behind us. Just like them. God's power was available to them, and yet they lived without any obvious sense of his blessing. They hid themselves away in caves. How relevant is that to us today as a church? We're seen by the nations as irrelevant. We're seen as lacking strength and purpose. In a tiny percentage of the overall population. Some would see us as a remnant from a previous era. One national newspaper recorded its appraisal of the modern church minister. It said, he's a general dog's body looking after a group of well-meaning but generally harmless people. Sounds like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, doesn't it? <laughs> Mostly harmless. Yeah? And isn't that how the New Testament describes the church? And the sad thing is, most people seem happy and content to settle for that description of church. They see the church as a remnant of the faithful that will hold on and diminish and somehow if we hold on long enough, Christ will come. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible talks about the church being the city set on a hill. It talks about the church being the very bride of Christ. It doesn't talk about someone in rags who've been through persecution and just about make it to the end. It talks about something with a glorious future. In today's church, people are seriously looking at the needs of our land. But they come up with different solutions. And just in, as in Gideon's day, okay, the truth that had been believed and obeyed was abandoned. And people were doing what they saw fit in their own eyes. So in that verse 1, they did evil in the sight of God. I recently heard someone talking about a conference they'd attended and, uh, and it was suggested there that the reason people don't come to church anymore is because we're so full of ourselves. That we arrogantly invite people to come and hear us. Surely we could change that and say that actually all of us are seeking God. And we should invite non-Christians to come along 
And instead of having services, we could share our ideas in our common search for God. The guy who was telling me about it was, was absolutely full of horror. And the reason he was full of horror was actually that suggestion was met with enthusiasm. They thought it was a great idea. Most people regard the church today as outdated, irrelevant, and all the time our enemies gain ground. At least that's how it appears. We see spiritualist conferences, we see people becoming involved in the occult. Our enemies gain ground while the church remains insignificant. Apparently with no answers and no word of solution, just hiding in caves. However, in this nation we can look back on times when God's lived powerfully. And many Christians do believe that he'll do so again. They're convinced that God's purpose is to bring his church to the fullness of the stature of Christ. That God is preparing his bride. And she will be without spot or blemish or wrinkle. She'll be ready for Jesus. But are we content to just live in the spiritual trough between two peaks? The days of Wesley have gone. The days of the Jeffreys brothers have gone. Are we a trough before something else wonderful happens? Is that what we want to do? That is very much the setting of the story of Gideon. And God made special mention of it in Isaiah 9. Because it says, The increase of his government shall be as the battle of Midian. So how did it all begin? It was a time of spiritual decline. But first, let's just have a look at how they got to such a low point. There's a simple explanation. The simple explanation is that the Midians were just too strong an enemy, and they overwhelmed the Israelites. And so the Israelites retreated to the caves. That's the simple answer. There is a more sophisticated interpretation that's been put forward, and you'll read it in a number of commentaries. And that's that the Israelites were in fact defeated by a new secret weapon. It was something they'd never encountered before. It was a new challenge and a new weapon that they had never faced. It was a weapon that enabled them to be conquered because of the ability to strike at great speed. It was called the camel. The Midianite army, with the aid of camels, presented a problem that Israel had never come across before. They'd never faced a camel in warfare. And some would have us believe that that is why Israel fell into decline in this period. But actually, if you look at the scriptures carefully, you'll find it isn't the Midianite nation and their strength 
nor their secret weapon that give us the real answer. I mean, we're talking about a God who had opened the Red Sea and collapsed the walls of Jericho. Do you think God couldn't cope with a camel? Do you think God is no match for a camel? If so, he might as well go home. In fact, Israel was overrun and it was a demonstration that their problem was not with the Midianites, but actually with God. That passage in Judges 6 begins, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of God, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. It wasn't that their enemies were too big. Rather, it was that God was not with them. If you turn back a few chapters, you'll find in Judges 2.15, it says, Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Therefore, God was actively against his own people during that period. If you look in Judges 3.12, it actually says, The Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. God strengthened Israel's pagan enemies. Why? Because Israel had turned away from him. And that fact was what bewildered Habakkuk, and it was a truth that Jeremiah had to live with throughout his entire prophetic ministry. The Israelites were defeated, and they were living in caves, not because God's strength was insufficient to help them, but because God was so mighty. He was ruling in heaven and earth, and he was actually giving strength to their enemies. So what about today? What does that tell us for today? Some would argue that the church isn't prospering today because of new problems we haven't had to face before. We haven't had to contend with the vast pressure of a secular society. We haven't had to contend with humanist teaching in schools and continual brainwashing by the media. It's possible to list other day modern camels. And some would have us believe that these modern day camels are what prevents the church from prospering. Secularism, pluralism, atheism. How can the church cope with the problems of the 21st century? Somehow, it's thought we can't keep up with modern day trends. The scripture tells us something entirely different. Scripture tells us that God will even strengthen his enemies when his people are not honouring him. Now, we mustn't be tempted to think that this is a situation confined to the Old Testament. God has never said that he will be with his people in any circumstance at all cost. Our God is a holy God. And he gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. 
He answers the prayers of the righteous and he will cause the devil to flee if we humble ourselves before him. There's that passage in James. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But the beginning of that is submit to God. We know that God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. God will oppose the crowd. He'll also oppose lying and cheating, even in the New Testament church. You only have to look in Acts at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira for that very reason. And Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, some of you are sick and some have even died because they have used the Lord's Supper and God judged them. The church in sin doesn't just miss out on blessing, but it can actually experience the opposition of our almighty God. We're told to believe that it's the devil who closes down churches. And when we hear of church buildings being converted into warehouses or bought by other religions, we regard it as the devil's work. Actually, the New Testament says that Jesus stands in the middle of the candlesticks and says, I will remove this one and close that one. God has never left his throne. He's to be feared. He will have his people as they are meant to be. Otherwise, he will oppose them. And he doesn't just dole out blessings without a care. As the government of Jesus increases, God will have deep dealings with his people. Jesus isn't all gentle and mild. He's also a God of wrath and of judgment. And if you look in the early chapters of the book of Revelation, Old Testament on you, he remains the same God. In the second chapter of Revelation, Jesus speaks to his church. And he says words of judgment. In verses 4 and 5, he says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else, I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Jesus goes on to threaten war and sickness and tribulation against various churches if they refuse to repent. This is our mighty God. We can't just carry on as we want and hope that God will bless us. And there won't be room for any special excuses either for the difficult days in which we live. How often have we heard people say, oh, our town, it's a very difficult one. It's a real centre of evil. No town is too difficult for God. He stands above it all. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. But he also said, 
I have this against you. And this was the situation in Gideon's day. Their defeat was not due to the power of the enemy at all, but due to the fact that God had some things against them. God has some things against today's church, and he's putting it right. And we need to know what those things are, and then respond diligently to them, as he tells us. If God gets to a point where he's not blessing us, we, we will end up with two options. We can settle for the status quo. We can go and live in the caves. Or we can cry out to God. In Gideon's day, there were those who chose to get used to the situation. They hadn't really ever known firsthand that it could be any different. In Judges 2, there's a tragic phrase. And it shows us what happened to the, the generation who saw the city of Jericho fall. And it says they were all dead. It says, all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They hadn't seen firsthand God's manifest power. And I think it's fair to say, with a few little exceptions, we live in a generation like that, that hasn't seen the mighty acts of God as our forefathers did. We haven't lived during the revivals that some generations before us have lived through, where thousands flock into churches to get right with God. We haven't seen whole towns change with the demonstration of the power and incredible glory of God. Something that always amazes me is wherever you drive around this country, you can go through towns and even small villages, even in the middle of Dartmoor and places like that, you find Methodist chapters. Because in that generation, the hand of God moved so powerfully through this generation, there was not a community that was left unaffected. And historians and commentators now write that if it hadn't been for that transformation due to the gospel in Wesley's time, we would have had a revolution like France. And that is what stopped us. But we haven't seen that in our generation. We have odd little blips. Toronto, Brownsville. But nothing at the scale that previous generations have seen. And to be honest, even the bits we know about, the majority of our generation knows nothing about those things. So perhaps we're living in a time just like Gideon. Finding that God wasn't with them, many of the people just dug in 
They lived in holes in the mountain. And what makes it even more pitiful is when you read back through scripture, those mountains were meant to be significant places for strategic possession. But here they are just dug into holes. When they moved into the promised land under Joshua, those very mountains represented the height of authority and power. Caleb, when he was asked what he wanted as his reward, asked for a mountain. Because to be on top of a mountain in warfare was a place of great authority. When you read the Psalms, the mountains feature in there. Get up into a high mountain and say, Behold your God. The mountains were meant to be possessed. But instead, this generation of Israel simply dug in. They prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts and caves and strongholds. And in the same way, we can either possess a great truth of God, or we can just dig in and hide behind it. There were people who did that in Jesus' day. They just said, we're the children of Abraham. To them, Abraham was a mountain figure of faith. But unlike Abraham, they had never personally experienced the faith that he'd had. Jesus came, and he came to them, and he ushered in a new day of the Spirit. A new demonstration of the power of God. But they said, no, 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 no. We are sons of Abraham. We received the law from Moses. They might as well have said, well, our doctrine is sound. Don't complicate stuff. In the same way, we can take great truths from the Bible. And instead of living in the good of them, we dig in defensively behind them and hide The result is that instead of saying, God is faithful, let us therefore bring the kingdom, we say instead, God is faithful and I will defend that truth to the end. A lot of people at Bible College are taught that their main objective is to be sound in their theology. They're going to be sound They're going to show up the modern liberal theologies for what they were. But they're not taught to be aware of the overdue emphasis of doctrine. The key word is balance. You know, that's what God used, balance. If someone gets too excited, emotionalism. Someone once wrote, mockingly in a college magazine, As we worship this great God of soundness and balance, with both feet firmly on the ground, let us go forward. I tell you, you can't keep both feet on the ground and move forward. I'm even on the secret. Walking is controlled falling. Did you know that? Because what you do when you walk, you lift the leg, it moves the centre of balance, 
you fall forward onto the other foot. And if you're lucky, you get that foot underneath you quick enough, that means you don't fall on your face. Okay? That's the difference between walking and falling. You just manage to keep your foot underneath you. With both feet firmly on the ground, let us move forward. If you look at the days of Jesus, sound men were always on the defensive. They took offence at the disciples' neglect of ceremonial washing. Time after time they spoke out against Jesus. As they sought to protect the truth as they understood it, the rules behind which they hid. In contrast, in Caleb's day, they laid hold of the truth. They said, if God is faithful, as the word says, let us go and take the land. Their doctrine was a source of confidence. It wasn't a dugout. It wasn't a hole to hide in. It was a springboard for them. They hit it running and were motivated forwards. But Gideon's generation hadn't seen God's power themselves and they fell into a temptation to hide in the mountain caves. But for us, there's no time for digging in. No time for us to get defensive. It's time for us to get offensive and take God at his word. We may need to put our house in order first. Our individual lives need to come under scrutiny. And so must the way we run church. We need to run the church of a living God. God wants his church back. And he wants it run his way. I just pray we'll never get to a point of defending what we do with cold doctrine. Instead, I'd rather we were like Caleb, obeying God and proving it as we believe this infallible word and put it into action. Amen? Yeah, let's just stand. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.